Father, we thank You for this night. We thank You for the opportunity to be in Your presence. Lord, we are about to partake of the only thing in the whole creation that You say is God-breathed, and that is Your Word. Father, I, I, I pray that You will speak through me. I do not want to overpower Your Word with my personality or lack thereof. I want You to speak because it is only through You that we have life. It is only through You that real revival comes. It is only through You that any of us is saved. So, Father, may You be glorified and may Your people be edified, sanctified, and revived. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, it is truly a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here tonight um, to be charged with the responsibility and entrusted with opening the Scriptures to you. It is something I most definitely do not take lightly. It's humbling. I'm thankful to Scott and, and this church for the opportunity. And I am eager to see what God does here. He tells us in Isaiah 55, 11, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. So that's a guarantee that God is going to accomplish whatever He wants to accomplish here. He's going to use His word both to sanctify and to judge. And of course, my prayer, I hope He uses it more to sanctify this week. Um, but I am excited to see what God does during and after this revival. You know, revivals are not com as common as they used to be. I was a little surprised to hear Scott tells me, uh, y'all do t two a year. Uh, that's great because uh, not many churches are doing many revivals anymore. We, and, and, and that may be because of the name revival itself. You know, we schedule revivals, we plan revivals, but only God can truly bring revival. It's not something that we muster up ourselves. Only God can breathe spiritual life to, into us. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can save. Only God can bring about everlasting change. So maybe there aren't revivals as much anymore because God is withdrawing His restraining hand as He sees this culture and He sees people dive further into sin and further into chaos and further into immorality. That could be the case. Maybe some of us just think that revivals are something for years gone by and generations past. Whatever the cause, I'm very thankful for this one. I'm very thankful for special meetings like these because as much as I understand about what God has done in me, I was saved at a revival. I grew up in church where the Bible was believed and preached. I don't remember a time in my life when I did not believe that Jesus was Lord, is Lord. I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't believe the things that I was taught out of this book. But it was at my friend's church on night one of a revival, a Sunday night, August 11th, 1983, when I first made a public declaration of faith in Jesus. 
And I was baptized the next week at my church. So I'm very thankful for how God uses meetings like these. We need more, not less. We need more preaching, not less. We need less gimmicks, more Bible, less earthly strategy, more God's Word, because that's what the Holy Spirit that they just sang about, that's what the Holy Spirit uses to make people alive, to grow them in Christ. That's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. To that end, friends, I ask you to open your copy of God's Word to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. And if you have a bookmark in one in your, in your Bible, like I've got this red one here, go ahead and put it there. Because we're going to be here for the next five nights, God willing. This is home base for us this week, unless God changes the plans that I have made. Um, I want to focus our attention on one of the most familiar yet misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. It's some, this is... And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, a lot of what I'm going to say tonight and over the next four nights is some things that I've been telling my church here lately. I'm preaching through the Gospel of Luke in my church. But as I began, I guess it was two months ago, maybe three months ago, that Scott approached me with the idea of preaching here. And as I began to pray, and as I began to prepare the weekly sermons in my own church, I began to be just convinced as I unpack the text to give to the people at Bethlehem Baptist Church on the other side of Carthage, that this is what I'm supposed to bring here. And I hope that you'll agree with me by the time I'm done. This is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. And this parable, you know, there are many unbelievers who never pick up a Bible who are even familiar with this parable. Um, the term prodigal, you know, it's, it's not just church language. It's part of our cultural vernacular. Uh, and, and that's because when we read what we're about to read, there are so many compelling details. I mean, this is a, the most detailed of Jesus' parables. There are so many emotions with which we can identify. There's such colorful language with which uh, Luke paints this picture, with which Jesus paints this picture. And, and we read it, and so it's no surprise that people are able to hold on to the, 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 the story, okay? But as much as we might be familiar with it, I'm going to argue that it is also one of, if not the most understood parable that Jesus taught. Because, you know, we're going to see that Jesus directed these words at religious people. In particular, religious leaders. But they were blind and deaf to what the real significance was. The same is largely true today. People often rip this story out of its historical first century context, in the Near Eastern context, that Jesus told this in. And sometimes you'll see people try to assign meaning to every little detail in the parable, so much that we lose what really is going on here. The forest is missed for the trees, you might say. Well, friends, to understand this rightly, we need to hear it the way Jesus' audience would have heard it. So let's make sure right now we get what the Holy Spirit wants us to get. We've got five nights to unpack this, and we're going to take our time. But it's my prayer that after we've covered verse 32, the last verse in this chapter, the last verse in this parable, that all of us... We'll see this parable with fresh eyes and with a fresh appreciation 
for what God has done through His Son. I believe these words can change your life. But to get it right, let's do set the context first, okay? Uh, What was going on here when Jesus told this famous parable? Well, if you read through Luke, you'll see that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. He had been spending a lot of time in Galilee, and then He decides... I got to go to Jerusalem because what is he going to do there? He knows that he is going to die on the cross in Jerusalem. He knows that he is going to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the perfect Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is a months-long journey that he begins to Jerusalem. He doesn't go in a straight line. He goes to all kinds of towns and villages, and he is teaching, and he's teaching, and he's teaching, and he's performing miracles to show that his words were true. But ultimately, he's going to die. And then he's going to be raised. And that would be the culmination of his ministry. But along the way... I mean, if you read through Luke, you see some heavy, heavy stuff. He is calling men and women to repent. He is calling men and women to turn from their sins and trust in Him. He says you have to abandon your worldly pursuits and trust in the Lord. You have to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will not be able. Jesus told people that you have to surrender everything. You have to surrender everything. It will cost you everything. It will cost you everything you want, everything you have, everything you think you might be someday. You have to surrender every desire you have, every relationship with you have. He says, you have to hate your father and mother if you want to be my disciple. And of course, he's not saying you literally hate them. But in comparison, you have to be so devoted to him that everything else is just rubbish by comparison. To be his disciple. And he certainly wasn't telling people what they wanted to hear. You don't hear that kind of preaching very much anymore, actually. That's why I'm thankful to be here in a church where I know Scott's a brother in arms like me. I'm glad he said that because that's what I consider him. But Jesus did not tickle ears. Jesus didn't speak to satisfy his hearers. Jesus didn't speak to sell books. Jesus didn't speak to get a a TV deal. He preached the truth. He wasn't so much concerned whether or not people felt good about themselves. He preached the truth. And whereas today many seem to want to lower the bar as to what it means to be a Christian, Jesus was raising the bar and raising the bar and raising the bar. Leaving no doubt as to His expectations for those who would be saved. Those who would follow Him and be saved. And His expectations made a lot of enemies. The truth made enemies because real, faithful, biblical preaching will always inevitably do that. If you need evidence of that, I submit to you the prophets in the Old Testament. It's Charles Spurgeon who said, There was never a revival of religion without a revival of his, Jesus' opposition. We should remember that this week, beloved. Do you want revival? Get ready to be opposed. Obeying Christ 
always inevitably encounters opposition. Jesus offended the sensibilities of the religious people in Israel. Most notably, the scribes and Pharisees we see at the beginning of this chapter. Look at verse 2, and what do you see them doing? They were grumbling. They were grumbling. And why were they grumbling? Because Jesus, instead of doing Judaism the way they said it should be done, instead of being the type of good Jew they said you had to be, Jesus dared to fellowship with who? With tax collectors and sinners. And whereas Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and 1 Kings 8.46 says there is no man who does not sin. So we're all covered there. The phrase tax collectors and sinners here is a term in, in, in the context here that refers to the worst of the worst. The type of people the religious people wanted nothing to do with. The moral reprobates, the scum, and yet who was Jesus with? He was with them. He was comfortable with the detested and made the religious establishment very uncomfortable. The scribes and Pharisees were very influential among the people, but they were utterly corrupt and hypocritical, focusing on appearing holy rather than being holy. They pretended humility rather than humbling themselves. They professed themselves the protectors of God's Word when in reality they were, in the words of Jesus, nullifying the Word of God for the sake of their traditions. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They hated Jesus because, as these are key words here, verse 2, this man, Jesus, this man receives sinners. Jesus met with those in need of God, and instead of assuming the holiness of and coddling those who looked apart on the outside, he met with those who needed it the most. So Jesus gave the religious people the parables. The scribes and Pharisees. First, the parable of the lost sheep in verses 3 through 7, where there's the shepherd and, and, and he's so concerned about the, the, the well being of one out of a hundred sheep that get lost that he goes and he finds it and he comes back safely and he rejoices. One out of a hundred. And then verses 8 through 10 is the parable of the lost coin, where there's this, there's this woman who she loses this coin. And she goes to these great pains to search her house to find this coin. And what does she do when she finds it? She throws a party that probably costs more than the coin was worth. And what the point of those parables tell us is what, what it says there if you read through them. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus gives us so much more than we're worth. And that brings us to this parable. Now, I don't usually talk this long before reading the text. Okay? Um, and we'll just start scratching the surface here tonight. But let's read the whole parable. And then let's see what the Lord has to tell us. Beginning in verse 11, And He, Jesus, said, 
A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly! Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is such a rich and layered parable. Characters we can relate to, a father, an older son, a younger son. That younger son is our focus tonight. The the one called the prodigal. That's a word we, we hear and use. Again, it's part of our cultural vernacular. But I do get the feeling that most people who hear the word and most people who use it don't really understand what it means. I think most of the time we associate that word with something that is lost or something that is found or something that is returned when really it means spendthrift. It means, to put it more bluntly, one who is wasteful, one who is selfish, one who is self-indulgent and that certainly describes this younger son this is he is what a sinner looks like 
In verse 11, a certain man has two sons and the younger says, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And you know, what, What's he doing here? He's asking for his share now of what he is supposed to one day inherit. Now, we need to let that register with us because the people listening to us, those scribes and Pharisees, this was a shocking thing to hear. It was a shocking thing for this younger son to say. It was a shocking thing for him to do and in a shocking way for Jesus to begin this story. And why is that? Because the culture of the scribes and Pharisees in the first century Jews was one, rightly so, that was built on generational respect. We seem to be losing more and more of that these days. But it was built on generational respect. Honor your father and mother was one of the Ten Commandments. And it happened to be one of the ones that the scribes and Pharisees paid more attention to than than some of the other ones. Not perfectly, of course. They had their issues with that one too. But here is this younger son wanting his money. Essentially, he wants to live the way he wants to live. He wants to to do what he wants to do. He wants to be how he wants to be. Free from the shackles of his father. Free from the restraints that come from his father's expectations of righteous living in his household. It was a complete disrespectful thing to do. He was thankless. He was utterly ungrateful for what his father had built, for what generations of his family had achieved, for, for, for everything that he had, had been able to take advantage of growing up. And considering the way that ancient Near Eastern cultures viewed respect for the father, this was equivalent to the younger son saying, Father, I don't want you to be my father anymore. I wish you were dead. That's what's going on here. You are in my way. You're in the way of my plans, my desires. You are a barrier to me, and I want out of this family. I don't want you. Give me what's coming to me, Father, because I wish you were dead. And I want what I want. He's willing to cut ties with his family and treat them as dead, knowing they will probably treat him the same way. That's how awful what he's doing is. It didn't matter that he was dishonoring his father. This is what a sinner looks like. You know, Jesus couldn't have used a better illustration to depict a sinner. To depict shame. What, What this son was doing was utterly shameful. Repudiating all that was right and proper, willingly bringing shame upon himself. He doesn't want to live by any law his father might have. He just wants the benefits of his father's riches. It's a shameful, shameful thing. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Give me my stuff. Now, according to custom, that means a third. A third of everything. The, the older son would customarily get a double portion, so he would get a third of the total wealth of his father. Which is a considerable amount, given what we read in this parable. And normally, even after assigning what each child would inherit, the father would maintain control over it until he died. But that wasn't good enough for the son. He wants now 
what he should have waited for. Give me my stuff. And if you're the scribes and Pharisees hearing this, remember, we need to hear it as they did. The expectation is what? That this would tick the Father off. You expect the Father to be so angry here. His Son is so ungrateful and is shaming Him, dishonoring Him in the whole community, disrespecting Him to the point it would be well within His rights to refuse His Son and disown Him. And that's what those who were listening to Jesus tell this parable would have expected next. But that's not what happened. Look at verse 12. The Father divided His wealth between them. So He gave His Son His share. And that word for wealth, by the way, in Greek, is the word bios. And we get the word biology from it, the study of life. The Father was dividing His life among them. Dividing what the family for generations had obtained and and cultivated and grown. So it's a shocking thing. You know, it's shocking enough that the Son has the audacity to, 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 to be this way. But it's even more shocking that the Father goes ahead and does this. He, he acquiesces uh, to, the, to, the, to the Son. And that's even more shocking to the scribes and Pharisees. They would have immediately lost respect for the Father for giving His wealth, His, his, his bias, His bias, His life away. But isn't that the picture of a sinner in God? Isn't this the picture of a sovereign Father, God, who is in control of all things, who Isaiah 46 tells us declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not yet been done, who will accomplish all His good pleasure, but in doing so, there are rebel sinners who take Him for granted, who take His goodness for granted, who take His grace for granted, His provision, His holiness, His Word for granted, and they end up demanding God give them what they want, when they want, how they want it. Maybe that's you today. The prodigal son then is what a sinner looks like. He exists only because of the Father. You know, a sinner exists only because God created him. God breathed into man the breath of life. You didn't do anything to get on this earth. Your parents didn't do anything to get on this earth. God started it all. God's ordained you to be here. But the sinner isn't satisfied with God. The sinner doesn't esteem God for who He is. The sinner doesn't appreciate God's goodness, God's grace, God's provision, God's holiness, God's Word. He has no concept of his own dependence upon God. He thinks he's self-sufficient. He thinks he can be who he wants to be, do what he wants to do, live how he wants to live. And he rejects God. And what we read about this in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, or through 32, rather, is that God gives him over, gives him over, gives him over. We see that language three times in Romans 1. So that this sinner, Colossians 1.21 says, He is alienated from the life of God, hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds. Friends, that's the prodigal son. The ungrateful son. And the father, hearing him demand his stuff, 
gives him over. And the sinner wastes little time acting on his sin. Look at verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And that phrase, gathered everything together, it literally refers to converting everything to what we would call cash. Currency that he could take anywhere and use anywhere. Yet he may have even sold the portion of his father's land that he inherited. Because in ancient cultures, you could sell that land off to a buyer, but the buyer couldn't take possession of it until the father died. So he could make his money off of his father even while he was still alive by selling his rights to that land. The bottom line, though, is that this son was disrespecting his father in every conceivable way, and now he wanted to get as far away from him as he could. So he goes to a distant country, which means a Gentile land. And remember, the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, are who is listening to this. They're, they are who are listening to this. And they would not have missed that detail. You know, a distant country to them is a Gentile land, which just emphasizes this son's wickedness because here is a young Jewish man leaving the land of promise, which is Israel, and he's going to a defiled Gentile land because that's how the Jews looked at every other land besides theirs. They they would dust off their feet when they came back from a voyage into a Gentile land. Why? To get the dirt off, to get what is unclean off of them. But here he is going to the Gentile land. The Pharisees and scribes hearing this couldn't have made up a more rebellious sinner, a more repulsive, disrespectful son if they themselves had been telling this story. So the son goes. What does he do in the distant country? He squandered his estate with loose living. He squandered his estate, everything he had, with loose living. And that's where the term prodigal comes in. He was wasteful. He was immoral. You know, in fact, his older brother later, and we read this, but, but it's later in the parable, his older brother is going to make reference to something. You know, his older brother would have known how he was living before he left. So he tells his dad later, he squandered your wealth on prostitutes. That's the kind of guy this younger son was. He made his life a dumpster fire. He became a tax collector and sinner. The worst of the worst. And the Pharisees would have never had anything to do with him. What's the point? Sin might feel good in the moment, friends. In fact, it often feels good in the moment. Why? Because it appeals to our fleshly lust. But it never works out in the end. Never ends the way you want it to. Drunken living never ends the way you want it to. Sexual immorality never ends the way you want it to. Being foolish with money never ends the way you want it to. Hating others. Gossip. Bullying. You just fill in the blank with whatever sin. It never ends the way you want it to when you're actually doing it. 
And that's how it was with the prodigal son because what do we see next? A severe famine came. And, and the famine's not his fault. You know, sometimes things happen which are not even the fault of the worst of sinners. Sometimes storms come. Sometimes hurricanes come. Sometimes floods come. Here a famine comes. And when you add the famine to his own unwise living, he becomes impoverished. And it begins to sink in on him just how bad his life is. Things just aren't working out the way it, he, he, he thought they would, the way he wanted it to. He lost it all. He squandered everything. He's destitute. So what do you do when you lose it all? What do you do when you're utterly desperate? Well, in your sin, I'll tell you what you try to do. You try to fix things yourself. I know what I'll do. I'll be better. I'll be a better. I'll go to church. I'll even get baptized. I'll go to Sunday school. I'll go to AA meetings. And I'm not saying anything wrong with that. But the point is, I'll do this. I'll do that. What did the son do? Instead of realizing what he needed to do, he stayed in that distant country, that Gentile land. He hired himself out. And that word for hired, there's more to that than meets the eye. It literally means to glue or to join to. What, what the text is saying, what Jesus is saying is He attached Himself to that Gentile land. He, he glued Himself. He became like one of them. And instead of making things right, He figured the only way to save face was to become like a Gentile. And that's the point of verse 15. He hired Himself out, was sent to the field to feed swine. To, to feed pigs. Now, those of you who know anything about Jewish culture, what's one animal they're not supposed to eat? Pork, right? So talk about another detail that would have sent the heads of the scribes and Pharisees. About, you, know, you would see smoke coming out of their ears. A Jew feeding pigs in a Gentile land in service to a Gentile... He was prohibited from the law from eating pork, and now he's feeding pork. It can't get worse than this. Except it does. See, he couldn't even afford to eat after he was doing what he was doing, so he starts wishing he was the pigs. He starts wishing he could eat what they are eating because at least the, their stomachs are filled by the pods he's giving them. He is so desperate, he willingly wants to eat their food. Friends, we're just a few verses into this. and Already the scribes and Pharisees who, who, who thought themselves holy, they would have been offended beyond belief. You know, they, they couldn't have fathomed that even one of the tax collectors and sinners Jesus hung around with was getting this low and this shameful. Yet this prodigal son, this wasteful, self-indulgent son, who'd willingly shamed his father and separated from him, thinking life on his own away from his father would be better. This is what a sinner looks like. This is what a sinner looks like. But here's what we all need to realize. That this is also a picture of us. This is our story. This is not outlandish in the sense it's unusual. It's only outlandish because it's us. This is the sinner. This is the one 
who by nature, according to Ephesians 2, is a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, walking according to the course of this world. And what does James say about that? He says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So he denies God's power. He may even sometimes deny God's existence. He hates God. He lives for himself. He loves himself. He he puts himself above God. He's self-indulgent. This is the one who, who wants what he wants. He tries to fix things his own way with money, with sex, with drugs, with alcohol, with gossip, with taking down others, with, with, with wasting time, maybe you know, with divorce or remarriage or divorce and remarriage again. Maybe this one even tries religion, but more on that later. But not just all of these things. This is the one who values what he thinks and what he wants above what God says. He doesn't subject himself to the Word of God. Jesus Christ is not really his Lord. The younger son got as shameful as possible. But the fact of the matter is, this is the condition of anyone and everyone who is separated from God the Father. So the son gets so shameful before something happens to change things. But we'll get to that, God willing, tomorrow. Until then, friends, tonight we need to remember that Jesus, this man, receives sinners. Jesus Christ can remove your shame. Your sins can be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. What you have to do is realize that God is a holy God. That every sin that has ever been committed will be punished by God. And it will either be punished when He judges you, or it will be punished because Jesus has taken your place. Tonight, you must repent. That means to turn from your sins, to have a change of mind about you, And you must entrust all you are and everything you have and all you ever will be, all of your estate, to Jesus. God has an immutable requirement, an unchanging requirement. And that is perfect righteousness. Because He is perfect and righteous, He has to demand that we be perfectly righteous. And of course, the problem with that is, there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all turned aside. We've all gone astray. You know, Romans 3 even tells us, Paul's quoting the Old Testament, he's quoting the Psalms, there is no one who even seeks after God. And so the result, if nothing changes, is that God's going to mete out His punishment And that's a place called the lake of fire.
That's what the Bible calls it in Revelation 20. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 says, that's where you endure the penalty of eternal destruction. But there is a solution. And only one solution, by the way. This man received sinners. God took on flesh. He added humanity to His deity. The second person of the Trinity became a, a man. He was entering. He entered into this world through the womb of a Jewish virgin. And He met all of God's perfectly righteous requirements. But rather than just ride off into the sunset and separate Himself from all the scum of the earth, which is everybody else, He willingly went to Jerusalem. Luke will take us there if we keep reading long enough. And He willingly gave Himself over. You know, God gives the sinner over. Jesus gave Himself over to be crucified so that God punished in Him everyone who will ever trust in Him. God on the cross poured out the full fury of His wrath for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe upon His Son. So that if you repent and trust in Him, you will be forgiven. But what's even better than forgiveness, if there's something possible, if there's something even to make it better, is that He didn't stay in the tomb. He was raised from the dead on the third day by the glory of the Father so that we might walk in newness of life. This is the gospel. This is what you must believe, what you must accept. And if you tonight know that you aren't living with this faith, with a life reflecting faith in the Son of God who wasn't wasteful, who wasn't self-indulgent, then I implore you tonight by the mercies of God that you might be reconciled to Him even now. I was seven years old on the first night of a revival when I professed faith in Jesus Christ. If tonight you want to know how you can be saved, then when we sing I Surrender All in a matter of seconds, I invite you to come. And I'll tell you all about it. Scott will tell you all about it. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and find out by His grace how you can be saved. And one final word. Maybe tonight you are a Christian. You are a child of the Father. Praise God. Praise God, because it's only by His grace. But maybe you are wasting what you've been given by God. Maybe you want to see your life change. The only way you can do that is if you surrender all to Him. You have to follow Him. You have to live by His words and not your own ideas. You have to obey His commands and not your desires. You have to be changed by God. And maybe you need to confess that to Him tonight. And I invite you to do so too. This man received sinners. Why not take him up on that offer?
Let's pray. Father, this is just the beginning of this revival. We're just beginning to work through this parable that's so familiar to us, but also so often misunderstood. So I pray you will give us ears to hear. I pray you will make it abundantly clear to each and every one of us that a life divorced from you is no life at all. A life not submitted to the Lordship of your Son is no life at all. Father, I pray that anyone and everyone here, I I pray that your Holy Spirit might convict us and enable us to repent and follow more zealously your Son, Jesus. That you might not allow one person, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter how long they've been in church, no matter what their social status is, no matter what their past is, I pray no one might be allowed by you to leave here without their heart searched. By your grace, I pray we might not walk out those doors living like the prodigal, thinking like the prodigal, ungrateful and continuing in our sin. Please, Father, grant to us the grace of repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth so that we might escape the snare of the devil. May those whom you have called out see the sacrifice of your son Jesus and trust in his finished work on behalf of everyone he saves and walk in the newness of life guaranteed by his resurrection. Help us repent and believe and follow. For your glory, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.